know the why human trafficking work is needed to fight for the freedom of modern day slaves. But love, passion, commitment isn't all you need to be an effective and successful anti-trafficking advocate. Learn the how. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, Director of the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute at the University of Toledo. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast, where I'll provide you with the latest and best methods, policy, and practice discussed by experienced experts in the field so that you can cut through the noise, save time, and be about the work of saving lives. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation, episode 129. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing to you, Melissa Yao. She's the executive director of the National Trafficking Sheltered Alliance. Yes, that's right. Everything we've been looking for, housing and connection. So the NTSA's mission is to foster a community of service providers for survivors of human trafficking, sexual exploitation, and prostitution in order to enhance the quality of care for our survivors. For nearly eight years, Melissa worked at a long-term restoration home for survivors of human trafficking. She has firsthand knowledge on how isolating it can be for those working with survivors of sexual exploitation and how passionate about building the community, empowering, encouraging each other in this work she is and she knows you are. So Melissa has worked to increase awareness and deepen community engagement on issues around human trafficking, spearheaded advocacy campaigns, hosted nationwide gatherings and conferences and supported staff and residents through their spiritual journey. So Melissa is here to talk about housing and connection. And so uh, we really want to focus in on what the National Trafficking Shelter Alliance does. So can you give us a brief overview? Sure. Celia, I'll be honest. I've been working on my elevator speech and I've gotten to about a 57th foot uh, floor building. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's awesome. a shorter elevator spiel. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Good, yeah. good. <laughs> um, NTSA is um, only a little over three years old. And really this was birthed from a handful, about 24 residential agencies um, throughout the U.S. saying, we're exhausted. We are committed to this field. We're committed to survivors. But if we don't start working together, we're going to burn out. And so um, October of 2018, we all committed saying, yeah, let's lock arms. Let's stop working as siloed agencies and start sharing resources. And so that's what we've been doing. Um, and it's proved to be incredibly impactful for the experience of survivors across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, our, like, I, I like to say NTSA has three main pillars of how we, how we ensure quality of care for survivors. The first being that membership piece where we work to um, connect agencies with each other. We provide trainings. For example, we'll do a membership training on de-escalation because I got too many calls from agencies saying our house just emotionally exploded and we almost had to stop serving survivors because there was a fight over who got to be in charge of the remote control. Mm, That's a true story, Mm -hmm. right? Like you never know what that little tiny trigger is going to be to completely escalate 
a benign situation. And so we we brought an expert in for all of our members to learn how to de-escalate. Um, we just hosted a conference where we had really practical, like, how do you partner with law enforcement? Um, because law enforcement has their own culture and we have our own culture. And sometimes we don't speak the same language. So we bring um, law enforcement experts to come in and say, this is how to partner with us effectively. Um, so we bring in experts and provide training on really practical um, uh, ways to serve survivors in that residential capacity, because this field is so nuanced. You can't go to a domestic violence conference. You can't go to a drug rehab conference. There's so much, so many more layers in complex trauma in working with survivors that I get calls from domestic violence shelters saying, holy crud, we thought we'd open a couple beds just for survivors. It was more than we thought. And I'm like, yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, it is. And then you're in the building it's with a lot of people that have experienced a lot of trauma. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, you have to be ready for the explosions, the implosions, and then know how to handle those things. I think that's wonderful that people are not only using the word collaboration, but actually collaborating. And I think that is awesome. And so anything else you want to share before I ask you questions specifically about NTSA? Yeah. So our second pillar is our referral system. And so this is where we partner with law enforcement, frontline responders, um, medical personnel, social workers. They send us referrals or survivors themselves send a referral through our system. And we're able to find um, a placement for them that meets not just their requirements, but their preferences. We've shifted the system to where choice is put into the hands of the survivors. And so we're really, really excited about that. And to date, we've been able to help almost 900 referrals find placement throughout the U.S. And then our final pillar is our accreditation program. We've, we've brought in experts to create what we call essential standards. If you say you serve survivors in a residential capacity, here are standards that we've seen to be the most effective to creating a safe and, and, and actually effective program model. This, this doesn't get into the weeds of, do you have a blackout period? Do you have, you know, bathroom break? Like we don't get into the weeds, but little things that are standard in much more mature fields, but because our field is still so new, the average residential program, Celia, it's only nine and a half years old. Like this is such a baby. We're still like in that, you know, preteen. We're not even preteens yet. Well, let's talk so, about some of those essential standards of care, because I'm sure that'll be very useful to people. You know, it's things like um, uh, all of your direct staff should be or for us has to be um, CPR certified. Because we know that survivors have a 50% or higher propensity for self-harm. Mm -hmm. So we have to anticipate there is going to be situations where you have to administer basic first aid um, or be mindful of what, what, how to respond to those situations. And so if you're going to serve survivors, you need to be prepared for those emergency situations. Genius. What else? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The other one that is a little bit more um, controversial. So Celia, this might be where you hit the edit button, but I'm going to say it anyways, say it. Um, is uh, faith integration. 
for us, NTSA, more than 90% of our members, and we have about 95 now, are faith-based agencies. These are agencies that really are um, um, confident that the spiritual component of the healing journey is critical to having a holistic approach to overcoming the trauma. NTSA itself, we are a faith-based agency and support these, um, these principles. However, we have seen many circumstances where the faith integration into the programming goes from it being an opportunity to, for healing to a, to a really coercive environment. And that's not good for anybody. And I don't know that it's done intentional. I don't think you have malicious people that are like, I'm going to make every single person follow my faith interpretations. But I think that unless we take measures to have things in place to make sure that it is still by choice, because I mean, I don't know who your audience is, Celia, but you know, for most people that engage in any type of faith, it is their choice to engage in that. There's a reason that they went on that journey. And so let's provide that choice to survivors themselves instead of it becoming a controlled coercive situation. So that's one of our essential standards is ensuring that um, faith integration is not coercive or harmful. Exactly. I, I mean, in, in the spiritual sense of the word, preach on sister, yeah. because that is all about power, choice, and voice. So mm-hmm. I love it. We can be spiritual in our hearts and walk with very practical feet. We Mm -hmm. don't need to push our religion onto somebody because that could be very well-intentioned, but could be very harmful to somebody. Yeah. Well, and we have to acknowledge that many survivors, part of their exploitive experience was done by people professing faith. I had one survivor um, who shared that her trafficker brought her to church two or three times a week. I mean, they were immersed in this church culture. And when he went to trial, when she testified against him, there was church members that stood on his side and defended him. And so she wanted nothing to do with the church at all. But then she experienced people, she calls them Jesus people, not church people. For her, church people are the ones that defended her trafficker. Mm -hmm. Jesus people are the ones that are saying, hey, you can come to church whenever you want. You can pray or read whenever you want, but just know we're going to be here regardless. And isn't that the expression of unconditional love? And you know what? She is fully serving and expressing her faith in a really healthy way now because of those Jesus people instead of the church people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, I love it. I love the difference in, in our community. Anyone can walk with the spiritual purpose and anyone can also be a trafficker. We just convicted uh, three traffickers that were pastors in the last three years in my community. So, um, you know, you never know. Uh, You just have to try to be true to yourself and do the best job that you can do without pushing your values onto someone else. So what are some other essential standards of care that people should be following? Yeah, 
Another essential standard, in, and Celia, I'll just be honest, we really designed our essential standards almost like a blueprint. So if you like, if you're building a house, the blueprint really shows you where the framing is, but it doesn't show you, it doesn't create a home. It builds the frame. It doesn't create the home. And so most of our essential standards are things that are non-negotiable, but are very, very small when it comes to running the program. And so another essential standard is safety protocols. We're not explicit on what that looks like because safety protocols in a rural setting is very different than an urban setting. And so we're not going to dictate, okay, you have to have this many cameras, this kind of lock, this, this is just like, hey, where's your environment? Here are things that you should be looking into to ensure that you're creating a safe environment based on your demographics, because wherever you're at is going to be nuanced. And so it should be taken into account. Now, is there anywhere that people can get access to these essential standards of care? How can they get access to that? Yeah, it's right on our website. It's right on our website. So if you just go to shelteredalliance.org, um, it's one of the top bars. It's called accreditation. You click on that and all of our, all of our standards are right there. Um, you have to be a member to access the commentaries to help understand the kind of the essence of what the standards mean. Um, we'd love to have you as a member. It's a really thriving community. Hey, I want to break into this episode for a moment. I want to remind you that survivors of sex trafficking experience trauma as a result. Trauma-informed care is something we learn so that we don't re-traumatize victims. However, trauma-informed care will not lower someone's trauma. We have survivors that need to heal inside. Most quality direct service workers connect survivors to needed services like healthcare, housing, legal services, and more. But these services, while necessary, won't address the internal trauma. Even when we connect them to trauma treatment counselors, they spend about an hour a week addressing traumas that have taken over their entire lives. They need so much more. Connecting someone to needed housing won't fix the brokenness inside. Arresting their trafficker allows them justice, but it won't heal the internal pain. Linking them to a lawyer won't take them to a place of reclaiming their freedom and experiencing genuine joy. Walking alongside survivors to provide support, nurturing, love, kindness, and to build relationship is critical, but they also need the tools to regain the power, choice, and voice internally. Healing the internal pain requires survivors to do the internal work. I've worked with and studied the issue for almost 30 years. I recently wrote a book outlining the 12 journeys that survivors need to go on to heal the trauma and to live the life they truly want to live. I'd love to train you to be a group facilitator leading survivors toward the internal healing they need. The training is the TNT Survivors Journey Group. Let me train you to facilitate these important groups and put survivors on their path to living the life they want and experience the freedom and joy they deserve. To learn more, go to my website, celiawilliamson.com, and watch the free webinar to learn more about the course. I look forward to training you and helping you help survivors to heal. And now on with the podcast. How do people become a member? 
Yeah, it's also right there on our website, or you can email us at membership at shelteredalliance.org. Um, we have, uh, uh, you know, can I tell you my favorite story about being a member of NTSA oh, really absolutely. quick? Absolutely, yeah. You know, when, um, I don't know if you know this, but March 2020 was kind of a big deal for the world. Yes. And um, it was also problematic for most residential programs because um, they were still getting referrals, but they didn't know, like, how do you protect the survivors that are currently in our program, um, but also not pause on offering services to the most vulnerable of our community. And so we had one agent, one member, um, the Well House in Birmingham, Alabama, they partnered with local their local hospital to develop a protocol for onboarding new um, new residents in a safe way um, to protect their staff and other residents. And this was comprehensive. It was a pretty really um, long document that walked through so much that, you know, in April and May of 2020, none of us knew anything, right? We were still debating masks at that point. And so we were able to share that with all of our all of our members across the country, because why go why should every agency create a protocol when we already have this phenomenal one to be shared with others? And that's the power of community. When I say don't work siloed, someone's probably already done a great job developing what you need. And I am happy to share it because this is a generous community. We all just want survivors to have the best care. Nobody's like, hey, I'll, you know, I'll $25 for my protocol. Nobody's saying that. Nobody's saying that. Are there any particular barriers that you all know about uh, that because you've been doing this works for so long, you know that there are some particular populations or demographics of people that it might be difficult for them to find housing. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, Celia, I'm so glad you asked that question because, you know, I think when people hear about trafficking, they want to respond to trafficking, they often want to respond to the greatest need. So let me tell you what our greatest needs are, because through our referral system, I can tell you the gaps in services of the placements that are the most complicated. So number one is women that want to keep their kids with them. Women and children are really hard to find placement. Very few agencies are equipped to um, um, treat a survivor with her kids there um, at the same time. Um, the other one that we see are survivors that are in some type of like methadone or suboxone um, because they don't have staff that understand those types of chemical supports or dependencies. And so there's real reservation in taking survivors with that. And that's problematic because both methadone and suboxone are uh, um, increasing in um, methods to support addiction recovery. So this is gonna increasingly become an issue that we have to address in a residential setting. Um, and then I think the third one is um, serving men um, and the trans, trans community. We are talking to um, less than five agencies across the country that are serving male victims right now. Well, and about how many men do you think are available to men? Celia, I can't even say that because the five agencies that I'm working with, only one of them provide actual housing. Um, the most mature um, and effective agency that I've seen across the country serving the male population is Emmaus in Chicago. 
They do outreach. They do not do residential. And Noah, who is executive director out there, who's just a brilliant, brilliant human being, um, is very discouraged. They've been doing outreach for over 20 years and are just really saddened at the lack of response in residential housing for male victims. You know, REST out in Seattle, um, they do outreach for all genders. And they have noted over the years, they've been doing outreach for over 10 years now, that unless they have a staff member that is explicitly and intentionally doing outreach to male survivors, they'll get almost no requests for support for male survivors. There's this, there's this mental barrier for men, especially in our society, to acknowledge the need for help. Because they're not supposed to be the victims. I've heard from so many male survivors. There's this real um, um, like uh, sadness at failing to protect the female victims. And so who are they to reach out for help when they couldn't even help the women? Because as men, you know, they're taught like we're the protectors and they couldn't even protect the women, let alone themselves. So that's a really, really vulnerable population that severely lacks access to resources. That's so stigmatizing that that continues to be the case. Uh, if someone is passionate and very interested in either, you know, building a quality program that they already have, or mm-hmm. they're interested in building a, a program, a sheltered program, can they reach out to you? And in what ways do they reach out to your organization to become educated? Perhaps they're interested in serving a male population. Um, very passionate about that, but they don't want to make missteps. They don't want to, they want to offer quality services. So what would your recommendations be for them? Yeah. I mean, first of all, it just makes me so overwhelmingly relieved when people reach out to ask for those connections, to ask for that support and that guidance, Um, because sometimes our mistakes that are good intentions could be a matter of life or death for another human. It is so important for us to do this well. And so we are absolutely committed to building bridges between those siloed agencies so that you're not doing this alone. Because if you're trying to do this alone, you are going to burn out. This is hard, exhausting work. And we can't stop because the survivors deserve us to keep going. And the best thing we could do is to lock arms to make ourselves even stronger. So we will connect you. Whatever city you're in, I'm sure that we have connections, maybe not the city, but certainly the state. Um, And so, yes, we'll make those connections. We'll provide those resources, the trainings. That's We are so committed to supporting these agencies to do the very, very best quality of care. And so in a very real way, when I become a member practically, what do I get? What happens? Who do I meet with? Take me through the process. Oh, sure. Yeah. So you just fill out your membership application. So we know like where you're at in terms of the demographics that you serve and the number of staffing that you have, just so we can have an idea of how to best support you. Um, We have staff that are exclusively dedicated to working with our members. Um, And so you will connect with our staff and do like an onboarding orientation. One of my favorite things that we do for our members is offer a um, bi-monthly, we call it a resource guide. So we'll pick a topic for a whole quarter. So for example, trauma-informed care. 
Everybody talks about it. Very few people actually know what it is. Let's just be honest, Celia. I'm just being honest. We say we're trauma-informed trained and we've read, you know, we've watched a two-minute TED Talk. So we'll take... (laughs) Right. Is that where you hit the edit button? Well, anyway. (laughs) I will not. I will not because it needs to be said. You had to say it and there it is. Truth. So go, go ahead. It's out there. It's out there. So um, we spent a whole quarter on pulling different resources on trauma-informed training. We'll pull the latest TED Talks. We'll pull the latest podcasts, the um, the scholarly articles, the latest research on it, who the experts in the field are. So you don't have to go out and Google best trauma-informed training. I mean, how exhausting is that? How exhausting is that? So whole quarter on that. We spent a whole quarter on um, volunteer and staff empowerment. Because Celia, the number one reason agencies close is funding. The number two reason is lack of staff and volunteers. It is outrageously complicated to find people qualified to work with survivors of such complex trauma. And so we spend a whole quarter on how do you train and equip your staff? Very few of your staff are going to come in already equipped. Most of them are going to come in with wonderful intentions. We just have to empower them to do those intentions well. And so we spent a whole quarter training you how to how to do that with your staff so you don't have staff burnout. So things like that. Well, Melissa, is there anything else that you want to share with somebody who's either passionate about running or opening a shelter or wants to support you and support this national collaboration. Maybe you're doing all the things well, and they just want to be able to support it. They don't want to go open a house. They want you to do the work. They would just like the support. So what are some of the things that the National Alliance needs? Yeah. Oh, gosh. What do we need? Well, I'll tell you, one of the things that we love to do for our members is to develop partners with complementary fields. So for example, we're right now working with this, it's essentially, I forget their their actual name, but it's a national network of uh, um, uh, doctor's offices that have uh, the tattoo laser removals in their offices, the tattoo laser machines to partner with them, they're spread throughout the country and partner with us and our members throughout the country so that the agencies across the country already have a connection for free tattoo removal for their survivors. Another partnership that we have is with um, its agency called Free for Life where they offer scholarships to survivors. So they partner with us, we partner with our members to find a a connection for um, scholarships. So if you're listening and you're saying, all I do is I clean teeth all all day because I'm a dentist, I would love to partner with you because that is a desperate need. If you're saying, I'm a stay-at-home mom. All I do is I like to, you know, knit, crochet, or, you know, whatever. Like, you love to do craft things. I mean, how therapeutic for survivors. Like, we'd love to connect you with a local agency that could totally utilize a, a skill like that. Opening a program is really, really hard. Maybe let's not start there. Maybe that's an end goal, but let's see what actually working with survivors directly um, feels like on a kind of a smaller scale before we offer your bed in a basement. 
And did you say free, the free program scholarships? Uh, free for Free for Life is an agency based out of Nashville, Tennessee, that offers scholarships for survivors. Yeah, that's awesome because we offer uh, scholarships for survivors, also called free. Never even oh. knew about the one in Nashville. Like that's awesome. To become a member, is there a cost for these agencies to become a member? And if so, what is it? And um, we know what you get, but what is the cost? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'll be honest, we really wrestled with whether or not to charge a fee or not knowing that most agencies budgets are so tight. But, you know, these that 24 initial agencies that came together and developed in TSA agreed that sometimes you have to have some skin in the game. And so it's a nominal fee. If you are in the startup phase, so you're not actually open, it's $50 a month. If you're fully open and, and um, utilizing all of the resources of NTSA, it's $100 a month, $1,200 a year. Um, that that um, uh, We call them the general members. That comes with free accreditation, which helps boost credibility with your funders and it's worth the price. It's worth the price. Please don't let that some small nominal fee be a deterrent to joining because I'm telling you, it is worth every single penny. It's an amazing community that supports each other in incredible ways. I think the, getting the accreditation alone is valuable, getting that knowledge and that support and that collaboration. So you understand the standards and what's happening across the U.S., is very valuable. It's like you'll be in the in club, in the know, uh, in the cool kid club, you know. And so that's very important when you're trying to provide quality work. And, you know, if you are not there knitting or uh, providing in those ways, um, sponsors sponsoring an agency in your community so that they can become a part of this network would be another great way to lend your support and make sure that you are involving your community in a national network that is providing services for some of the most vulnerable people in our community. So mm -hmm. I think that would be an awesome way to enter into 2022. Yeah. So think about that as well. Any parting yeah. words, Melissa, that you want to share with this audience of advocates? Look, we've gone through 2020, okay? Enough said. Mm -hmm. uh, the sequel 2021 wasn't that great either. So nope. <laughs> anything, any parting words, any inspiration that you could share to keep us going in yeah. 2022? Oh, goodness, Celia. I'll tell you, you know, there was, it was interesting in 2020, talking to uh, um, agencies across the globe of the impact that the um, that COVID had on all of their work. And there's one agency that said here in the U.S., over 3,000 brothels were closed due to COVID. And there is real optimism that how can we keep them closed forever, right? We've been working for years to close them. Finally, a virus shuts it down. Let's keep that momentum going. And unfortunately, um, due to a lot of reasons, one being um, many porn sites offering free um, free membership during the quarantine, we saw a once things started to open up again, this massive surge in demand um, and trafficking across across the globe. So my inspiration or my my plea is 
dive in now. This is the time. If we don't intervene now, I don't know how it could get, I, I, I don't know when we could. I don't know when we could. So th this is the time. Let's go all in because um, trafficking isn't slowing down. It's escalating. We've got to be just, just as diligent. And I think particularly since we all felt in our personal lives what a lack of freedom really is. As we had to restrict our own movement, we got a firsthand experience only slightly on what it is to have to have restricted movement and to not be as free as we used to be in the past. So we have an ability to even be a little more empathetic in terms of what people might be going through when they're trafficked. And so I agree, this is the time. Thank you so much, Melissa. I really appreciate your time and Please keep doing the great work, the collaborative work nationally and globally that you do. We appreciate you. Thank you so much. That was Melissa Yao, the National Trafficking Sheltered Alliance. Hey, if you want to go fast, go by yourself. If you want to go far, go together. And she's talking about collaboration. 95 different shelters across the U.S. talking to each other. Would you ever have thought it possible? Getting stronger together, being able to talk about their stressors, their problems, share ideas and content and programming, all wonderful. Thank you so much, Melissa, for the work that you are doing. And listen to what she says. We need more shelters that accept families. Families want to stay together. We need shelters to help people that are fighting substance use disorder, people that are on treatments such as Suboxone. We need shelters that are offered to men, men who are trafficked, and we need more shelters for the trans population. So I'm so happy that these people are working together, and I know that together they're uplifting what they are providing to people that are so vulnerable and need the very best. Before I leave, I also want to acknowledge two titans that fell in 2022, and it's only January. Mr. Sidney Poitier and Miss Betty White. Sidney Poitier was in the movies back in the day, 50s, where he had to face serious racism. One of his quotes is, okay, listen, you think I'm so inconsequential? Then try this on for size. All those who see me unworthy when they look at me and are given thereby to deny me value to you, I say, I'm not talking about being as good as you. I hereby declare myself better than you. <laughs> oh, go ahead, Mr. Poitier. I hear you. I hear you. And Miss Betty White, one of her quotes is, everybody needs a passion. That's what keeps life interesting. If you live without passion, you can go through life without leaving any footprints. Thank you, Miss Betty. But my favorite quote from Betty White is when she was asked by someone, Betty White, 
Is there anything in your life that you haven't done? And Betty White said, Robert Redford. (laughs) Thank you very much, Miss Betty. And that is what kept you young. Now, see there, CC, you think I'm talking about something and I'm talking about something else. I mean, her sense of humor is what kept her young. She reached 99 years old. Sidney Poitier reached 94 years old. We could have let him live at least to see 2022, but it is what it is, and we will continue on. So until next week, the fight continues. Let's not just do something. Let's do the best thing. If you like this episode of Emancipation Nation, please subscribe, and I'll send you the weekly podcast. Until then, the fight continues.